This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hi, I'm Dina Marie, the host of the Twisted Philly podcast, and I've got a question for you. Do you love podcasts? Because I sure do. And that's why the podcast community, Podcast We Listen To, is hosting their very first podcast convention for listeners. It's called Pottern Love. The Pottern Love convention is for listeners by listeners. It's for all of us, and it includes podcasts from every genre you could imagine, including comedy, movies and TV, pop culture, paranormal, history, health and fitness, true crime, and so many more. Our first convention is August 10th, 11th, and 12th, 2018, in one of the coolest cities in the country, New Orleans, Louisiana. And it's being held at the Intercontinental Hotel, which is a premier French Quarter hotel. The location is amazing. And the room rate can't be beat either. It's only $129 a night. Tickets are on sale on the website at www.pottern.love. That's www.podern.love. There are over 40 independent podcasts already lined up to present at Pottern Love, and we'll be adding more before the convention. Plus, featured podcasters have discount codes, so you can get a discount on your tickets. Be sure to follow Pottern Love on Twitter and Facebook for the latest convention updates, news, information about new shows that are joining, and links to a dedicated website just for Pottern Love attendees to book their hotel room. We can't wait to see you this August in New Orleans. Welcome, everybody, to episode 95 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I am Jerry, and I'm joined by my beautiful wife, Tracy. Thank you, sweetie. Hi, everybody. Hope you're all having a great weekend so far. Yep, we are recording this one a little bit early because we will be at the Abbey Road on the River Beatles Festival. So we're going to record this one on Saturday night and uh, set it. So you'll still get it at the regular time, so you won't know any different. But uh, we may be short. If you leave a review on Sunday, we won't get that till next week. True. So that's the only thing that really affects that and uh, uh, Patreon. So let's jump on to reviews because we have an awesome show for you. And it's going to be a long show. So it would be a good thing if you're sitting back after the holiday with nothing going on and a full stomach from a cookout. There you go. First and foremost, always, especially this weekend, we want to give a, uh, a big thank you to all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which uh, country you represent. Amen to that. We love you guys. We support you so much. And we pray for you every day. And I just want to say God bless you for keeping us safe. Obviously, this in uh, the United States is Memorial Day. So this is the uh, the day where everybody has cookouts and stuff. But let's not forget the real reason that the holiday exists. It's to pay tribute to those who 
lost their lives fighting for this country. Yes, yeah, so, amen. Let's not forget that, and I know you guys don't. And it's also this week, what well, we like to talk about our civil servants as well, it's EMS week, which yes. is the uh, emergency medical service, ambulances and stuff yes. uh, here in the U.S. I'm not sure if it's that way all over the world or not, but... Mm-hmm. If it, regardless if it is or it isn't, we celebrate you guys every week. Absolutely. You guys work your butts off out there, and well, we don't know what we'd do without you. So before we get into reviews and stuff, there's not that many. Um, I do want to talk about uh, the, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. That's always uh, going to be at the front of the show from this point on. So if you're in the United States, 1-800-273-8255. And remember, if you need to talk to somebody grab somebody doesn't matter if it's us doesn't matter if it's somebody from this hotline it doesn't matter if it's a friend on facebook or twitter uh trust me there are more people out there willing to talk to you if you just give them an opportunity to talk to you than you realize correct please feel free to reach out to us absolutely and as far as this show this show is going to be uh like i said a long one because we've got a cool story that's got a bunch of different facets if you like rabbit holes this is going to be the story uh, I always like to tell you guys occasionally how many pages of notes we have. This one had 33 pages of notes, which is the by, by far the most we've ever had. Yeah, that's about, a lot. <laughs> about three or four pages, but that's still. Yeah, that's there's great. Only, there's only been a couple we even get past 25, and this one made it almost 35. So, yeah, so And it could have been 35 if I had write, wrote bigger. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we, we hope you guys enjoy it. Um, at the end of the show, we have an hour-long roundtable discussion. We did the one with... Uh, um, Scared host uh, Phil Holmes and, and with uh, Realm of the Supernatural, Lee Solway on, on uh, what was it, the Loch Ness Monster? Yes, Nessie. And a, pe- a lot of people like that one. And we kind of do a similar, it's not really talking about the same subject, but we've got Dina Marie from Twisted Philly, and we've got Jeremy Collins from podcasts we listen to. They're also the people behind the Potter and Love Podcast Festival. And so they're going to come on and this is a cool discussion. We spent uh, a few minutes talking about their their shows because they've got uh, you know Twisted Philly podcast we listen to, and they do a show together called Educating Jeremy, which is pretty funny. So we talk about that a little bit, but we spend the majority of the time talking about um, Jeremy's and Dina's paranormal experiences they've had, and then they both talk about some of the stuff that happened at Waverly while we were because we were all on the same tour yeah that's pretty cool yeah it's a really cool uh it's it could be a show all of its own if we released it that way and i thought about doing that but instead i figured i'd just give you an extra long show since it's uh memorial day weekend here (laughs) so let's get into the reviews real quick uh doster haven td brown 316 power lineman 76 wrong way right i like that name a samson 123 Thank you guys so much for your reviews. Thank you guys so much. They were great. We appreciate it so, so much. And as always, that means more to us than you realize. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, We had one new Patreon subscriber this week. That's Daniel Hunsucker. Thank you, Daniel. And Daniel's going to jump right on board, too, because he's got a story that he'll have for the uh, the very uh, first Patreon episode next month. Well, very cool. I can't wait to hear that. So, yeah, he was he was all in it. Let's go ahead and jump on and let's do a show, too. Oh, well, <laughs> so good. Well, we was, look forward to that. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you all so much. All right, let's jump into this. This story takes place in Brookfield, Connecticut. It's a sleepy little quiet town, about 13,000 people. On February 16th at 6.30 p.m. in 1981, 
this town had something happen that had never happened in its 193-year existence. Whoa. A murder. What? 193 years, they had never, never had a murder. Never a murder. Well, that is amazing. Well, and it's not just a murder. <laughs> such oh, a typical, man. Such a typical murder. It's a gruesome, bloody attack. Well, yay. And as if this murder wasn't strange enough for the town of Brookfield... The reason for the murder may have been even stranger. The murderer in this case, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, was possessed by a demon. His pending trial would also be a first. It was actually the first in the U.S. A trial where the defense was, the devil made me do it. Mm. That's pretty wild. So we got a lot of stuff on tap for you. So have I piqued your interest yet? Yeah. So since they've never had anything to deal with like that in their town, they probably didn't know, first off, how to deal with a murder period. And now they got to do it because <laughs> the devil made him do it. So they're in for quite a challenge. This story's got so many facets that I wasn't really sure exactly where I wanted to start at. You've got a murder in a town that hadn't had one in almost 200 years. You had a trial that was the first of its kind where someone tried to use demonic possession as a defense, you had the possession of the murderer himself. So I decided where we were going to start uh, is where it all began, which doesn't even involve any of the topics we've already mentioned. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is going to be exciting. Now, we've done lots of stories that involved hauntings, and we've done some that involved possession, right? Yes. The events that led to the possession of Cheyenne Johnson, and the reason I, I'm going to refer to him as Cheyenne the rest of the way, because his name was Arnie Cheyenne, and his friends called him Cheyenne. So oh. that's where we're going to refer okay. to him as Cheyenne Johnson. But the events that led to the possession of Cheyenne Johnson and the murder of uh, Alan Bono in the subsequent trial sounds more like the normal stories that we do on this show. Mm -hmm. Now, what makes this whole story incredible is that it doesn't stop with the initial story that we're going to tell. Most people will agree that the aftermath of this initial story is more fascinating than what we're going to start with. Okay. But you got to go there before you can go to the rest. So here we go. In 1980, the Glatzel family moved into a peaceful little town of Brookfield, Connecticut. It was Carl Sr., the dad, Judy, the mom, Debbie, who is the oldest daughter, Carl Jr., not to be confused with the restaurant, you're like the Hardys. I know, babe. <laughs> I got you. Okay. <laughs> and David, who was 11 years old. David's going to be the main focal point of this part of the story. Now, shortly after moving in, a series of bizarre occurrences started happening, and this would mark the beginning of disaster, really, that's about to take place in this whole family's lives. Oh, man. So, I already feel bad for him. There, or you're going to feel worse because it starts off with there's a waterbed in the house. So, oh, you didn't like... I loved our waterbed. It was fun. You couldn't wait for me to get rid of that thing. Well, at first it was fun. <laughs> matter of fact, you made me get rid of it. <laughs> anyway, there was a waterbed in the master bedroom that was left there by the, the previous tenants. And everybody kind of, you know, took turns laying on it and laughing about how weird it felt and mm -hmm. all that stuff. David, though, he wouldn't even try it. He was a little overweight. He was really self-conscious. He had black hair. And 
he just kind of tried to stay away from things that would make him feel queasy. That was kind of oh, like a little thing yeah, that he had. So he figured that might, you know, be might the case. do it. Yeah. Now later that day, though, he said that something pushed him onto the bed as he was walking past it. He looked up and he said he saw an old man in a torn plaid shirt and blue jeans. Said he had very coarse skin, and he said that the man pointed at him and said, "Beware." Almost kind of growled, beware, hmm. before pushing him on the bed. Wow, that's pretty creepy. <laughs> now, that's a strange story in itself. Well, yeah. And the Glatzels, they just kind of played it off as, you know, overactive imagination. So you think that ghost or whatever it was knew he didn't want to get on that bed? I would think so. And he just made him get on that bed? I would say so. So like, quit being a puss and get on that bed? <laughs> I don't know if that was the mentality of the said ghost or entity. That night, David saw this man again. This time, though, he said his skin was burned and black. Oh, my. And he was barefoot this time. And David said that he had no feet. Uh, he had more like hooves like a deer. Oh, gosh, darn. So the family, you know, this wasn't like bedtime. So the family is talking about this uh, downstairs at the kitchen table. And shortly after the second visit, I guess he decided, I need to tell somebody what's going on. Mm -hmm. Now, David had always been an honest kid, and he wasn't into any kind of horror or scary subjects or anything like that. So this definitely was out of character for him to even bring up something right. like this. David's situation would get progressively worse. He would wake up all hours of the night crying uncontrollably. His claim is that the old man was visiting him in his sleep and that he had black eyes, features more like an animal than, than a human person, sharp, jagged teeth, pointed ears, and hooves. Woo! That scared the crap out of me. <laughs> David then said the entity would continuously warn him that if they moved into this rental house, they would be harmed. Oh, really? Family. Well, wait. What rental house? The one they're in right now? Yeah, they. this one, yeah. I thought they were already moved in. Well, they, technically they were, but oh. I guess. He's just like saying, look. Yeah, maybe you know what's this, good for you. This demon probably didn't know the technicalities of the lease or something. <laughs> he probably did. So these visits. He kept, needs to have the facts. <laughs> that's right. These visits kept happening, and before long, um, they were happening in the daytime oh, as well. Oh gosh! Now David said that the entity said that he was the beast. That was the name he gave the beast, and sometimes he would refer refer to himself as the master. Mm-hmm. He would take on the appearance of an old man with a white beard dressed in a flannel shirt and jeans. That sounds That sounds nice. okay. Sounds like my pap, my daddy. Your dad, I've never seen your dad wear a flannel shirt. Oh, my dad wears flannel shirts. Yeah. He said that uh, the entity would growl at him and speak in foreign languages to him. He also threatened to steal his soul. I can imagine how that would make you a little upset. Shortly thereafter, David began to experience... Um, I guess, unexplainable strange wounds, mm -hmm. such as, like, scratches, cuts, and bruises. Oh, wow. On his body? Yeah. Oh, and his parents saw that? Did they see yeah. it? So his parents were, well, apparently, as we'll get into a little bit later, apparently Carl Sr. Um, didn't believe in any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So everybody else was on board, but Carl just said, He just you know, wasn't going to have it. You know, that's not what the deal is. So, but then the night terror started worsening to the point that, that he would wake up screaming, uh, it like he was horrified so his Poor mom baby. yeah his mom uh, said that she could see her son being thrown around like a rag doll 
She could see him being choked by invisible hands and see the marks and stuff around his neck. There is nothing worse than a ghost bully. (laughs) Do you feel me? That's true. I am familiar with that. Just rude. David also changed in other ways. He gained 60 pounds in just a few months. What? Yep. He started being, um, like, really aggressive. He started growling. Oh, my goodness. He was kind of withdrawn from kids and stuff at school. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they started picking on him. Well, probably. Uh, The Glatzels knew that police couldn't do anything about it, so they decided to reach out to the local Catholic church. Uh, They reached out for a priest at St. Joseph Roman uh, Catholic Church there Mm -hmm. in town. And he came by the house, and he did a a ritual cleansing of the house, but it had no effect whatsoever. The phenomenon just continued. Now, this family's desperate by now, right? So they, they begged the church for help. So they referred to two people that live right in their own state, there in Connecticut, mm-hmm. and you may have heard of them, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Man, them heifers show up everywhere. Yeah. Well, this was early on. This was just right after Amityville. Okay. So this is before a lot of the bigger stories that we know about. Ed Warren, of course, is a demonologist, and Lorraine is a medium. Uh, the Warrens' arrival kind of made everything ramp up. Oh, yeah. House, as you can imagine. Like, and probably really more real how right. did dad feel about that when they showed up he didn't really say about how dad felt it didn't it, the dad doesn't get talked about very often uh-huh. at all during any of this uh david began having seizures and fits about this time he would have convulsions that required him to be restrained and would snarl hiss and spit at people mm. it sounds like U of L fans i'm just saying <laughs> he was known to suddenly start reciting Verses from the Bible and uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, which both of those are kind of, it's an odd combination of the two. He would also speak in voices that were not his. He would speak some of the Bible verses in Latin, which he had never been exposed to. Hmm. And remember, this isn't like the internet was around. Yeah, of course. He wanted to be able to just start looking that stuff up. Right. David would complain about being hit, shoved, and choked by invisible hands. He would also flinch in pain uh, from an invisible knife wound, which will oh. come into play a little bit later. What a horrible way to live. Yep. He would attack his mom. He would uh, basically hit her and kick her. And she said that she just couldn't deal with it anymore. He actually attacked his grandmother with a knife. I don't know what came of that because there really wasn't anything else mentioned on it. The family started sleeping during the day because they had to use every bit of their energy at nighttime just to control him. So they were trying to take turns during the day sleeping so they would have the energy to, to deal with this night after night. God. The Warrens were actually called in 12 days after his first visit from the old man. So all this stuff mainly started happening about 12 mm-hmm. days when the Warrens got involved. So like the picked up, picking up weight and all that stuff, that was some of that took place after the Warrens had already been on the case. Now Lorraine said that she talked to David for the first time and she could see a black mist form right beside him and... Right after she saw the mist, he started complaining about choking, and she saw red prints on his neck. I don't know how that kid handled that. I guess if you don't have a choice, you don't have a choice. Mm. So they said that there were warning signs that when he was uh, uh, the beast was about to take possession of him. They said his, his head would lower to his chest, and then he would slowly lift it. And when he did this, his features would be contorted, and he would be snarling. And then he would let out some... You know, kind of a 
hideous laugh or mm-hmm. so yeah, like mine. Scary. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they said you could only see the whites of his eyes like there were no pupils no pupils or pupils not pupils pupils could be you say tomatoes i say <laughs> tomatoes um <laughs> the, <laughs> the warren said that uh they saw a toy dinosaur walk on its own across the floor they saw dishes uh, levitate they saw rocking chairs fly through the air. And one time they said he, there was a cake pan that had cake in it. It flew up in the air and hit the ceiling and left, uh, like, icing all over the ceiling. Wow. That was a waste. It was. So the beast even called up David's brother, Carl, on the phone and told him to beware. Now, how did he know how to use a phone? I don't know. If they had caller ID back then, he probably could have figured it out because it probably came from a 666 area code. <laughs> Just, That's probably guessing. true. I wonder um, if there is a six 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 area code. I don't know. I bet I, there's not. I bet there's not either. Hopefully not. David's sister Debbie, um, she claims that a green hand reached up from the floor and attacked her while she was in bed, and she said she's also seen the face of the beast. She described it as cold black eyes, horns, pointed ears with sharp jagged teeth. And about this time is when she requested her 19-year-old boyfriend, Cheyenne Johnson, to come live with the family because they would feel safer. So that's how Cheyenne, the murderer, actually got involved in all this. Mm-hmm. So the Warrens claim that David was possessed by 43 demons. Jeez. And they said that the reason they know this is because they asked for the demons' names and he gave 43 different names. And some of the names, most of the names, were names that matched up with demons that were mentioned in the Bible and uh, and through his other studies of, of other uh, exorcisms and stuff like that. Yeah, he's a goner. So the, the Warrens went on doing uh, a series of exorcisms. Uh, they claim that the exorcism um, involved four different Catholic priests. The Warrens said that doing the exorcism he would stop breathing for like long periods of time mm-hmm. and then he would sit up and do rapid series of sit-ups that he couldn't even do before his weight gain but all of a sudden in these exorcisms he just went for it and i think it. if they did enough exorcisms he probably would have lost that weight yeah that's my guess or at least had some hell of stomach muscles oh have a six-pack from possession <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good way to get it, though. <laughs> what was that? Uh, it six-pack abs. It'd be like yeah. <laughs> six-possession abs or something. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so they said he levitated at one time, and the priests were witnesses to this. And it was during these exorcisms when they determined the 43 demons oh, and what gosh. came out. Now, in October 1980, the family and the Warrens contacted the Brookfield Police Department And they reported that the situation was becoming dangerous, and they felt that the boy posed a threat to the family and to society, but they were mostly ignored by the police department. I mean, what are they going to do? Like, just take him and put him in a home somewhere? I don't know what they were expecting to have done, to be honest with you. Um, But they called, and, you know, that's on record that they did that. Mm -hmm. Now, Cheyenne Johnson, Debbie's fiancé, really felt sorry for David because, you know, he seen what was going on with him. And he was also exhausted because of, you know, this yeah, happening every sleep. night. Yeah. So he started taunting the demons. And you know, that always works out. He would shout at them on several occasions to take him 
instead. He said, come into me, leave the little lad alone. I'm not scared of you, I'll fight you. And then David at that point in time, he said, they're laughing at you. <laughs> oh, he did? Yeah, so apparently they didn't take his threat seriously. During one of these times where he was challenging the demons, he became terrified when he said he saw the demons and made eye contact with, with the demons mm -hmm. as he looked into David's eyes. Oh, man. And the Warrens had already warned him never to do those types of things. Don't tempt them. Don't try to aggravate them. Don't look into the eyes. He, everything that they told him to do, he just pretty much ignored. So what happens not too long after that? Cheyenne wrecked his car. He wouldn't hurt, but he claims that the demon had uh, taken control of him and made him crash. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to fast forward to November 1980. Judy and Carl Sr. took their son to a psychiatrist to see uh, if there was anything they could do at this point. They said that he was completely normal, except for a minor learning disability. So they sent him to this special school for uh, uh, children that, that had some issues, mm -hmm. basically. Troubled kids, disabilities, stuff like that. Meanwhile, Debbie and Cheyenne, they decided to move out. You would think would be a good move. Turns out not so much. So Debbie works at this little um, Brookfield pet motel. It's a place where they groom dogs and stuff uh -huh. like that. Do little, I guess they board them, do yeah. some kindling and stuff like that. And the pet motel had an apartment over the top of them that was um, managed by Alan Bono. Okay. So he managed the place and was Debbie's boss, but he also, also lived there. managed the apartment. Mm -hmm. So they decided to go ahead and, and move in. And we're going to take a second right now to kind of tell you a little bit about Alan Bono because he's really not came into the story yet, and he's kind of an important figure. So Alan was 40 years old. He had been living in Australia for a while, uh, for about like 17 months, and was running a, uh, a plantation over there. Oh, cool. Then he moved to Florida where he was staying. His sister actually owned that kennel, mm -hmm. and she called him up and said, hey, will you come up to Connecticut and run this thing for me? And... You know, Alan didn't know anything about running a kennel, but he thought, what the hell, I'll go ahead and do it. And so he moves up there. And at the point that all this is taking place, Alan has only been there for six months. Okay. Running this place. He was short, stocky, loved to talk about himself. And Debbie and Cheyenne just kind of hit it off with him. Uh, so they would hang out with him really often. Right. So now let's go back to Debbie and Cheyenne. Debbie became... Concerned because Cheyenne started to display strange and uncharacteristic behavior. He was normally really polite and even killed, according to her. Debbie had known him since she was 12, and this is a freaky story to begin with. He's now 19, so she's known him for about seven years. Keep in mind, he's 19, she's 27. Not saying that's horrible. Yeah. But they met when he was 12, and she was, what, 19? 20. So there's like an eight years difference. Yeah. And apparently she was working at a grocery store. This has nothing to do with the story, but I'm, now I'm going to tell it. But she was working at a grocery store, and I guess there was a display that got knocked over, and 12-year-old Cheyenne started uh, picking up the display and helping her. And that's how they met. Oh. And then when he was 16, he asked her out, and she started. so they started dating when he was 16. So she was like what 24 20 something, yeah so i don't know about the laws in connecticut but yeah you know i guess that the parents are okay with it and she apparently became real good friends with his mom and, uh -huh. and at one point his mom couldn't work and her and his kids 
or his brothers and sisters rather, they were kind of raising the kids and everything because mom was having trouble doing it. So there, there was a big connection with the family there. So now that I've completely derailed us and that had nothing to do with anything, so we'll get back on on task. They said that that now that this they felt like this demon may have been possessing him as well that he would become irate at the smallest thing and and go into these trances during which he would snarl and convulse and then afterwards he would have no memory of it. Oh, none of this stuff ever happened before he challenged the demon. This is not good. So during several of these little episodes, he would shout out that he could see the beast staring at him. So afterwards one time, he didn't remember any of this stuff. And these weird trances become more and more frequency, and his behavior became more erratic. So Debbie feared that her fiancé may be possessed by the same demon that her brother was possessed by. Yeah, because she knew he called him out, right? Right, right. And she's already lived through all this with her brother, so she sees the similarities. Now, none of Johnson's co-workers noticed any change in him at all, except for one time they said he kind of went ballistic and cut up a stuffed animal with a knife in like a little fit of rage. I mean... And they didn't really get into why or why yeah. there was a stuffed animal there or... Because this guy worked for like a tree service. So he was like a tree surgeon, which I don't know what a tree surgeon does. Yeah. But, but that was the only time, so he really didn't think a lot about it. Yeah, so it was no big deal to them. So on one occasion, Debbie said that uh, Cheyenne basically looked and said the beast there he is and he started growling and he started baring his teeth and just stared straight ahead well she said that she slapped him one time but there was basically no reaction from him so she slapped him again and he kind of came to and uh debbie told him then she said it's gone into you and she said he was responded with oh my god no so now that brings us to february 16th 1981 Arnie Cheyenne Johnson called in sick to work at Wright Tree Service. Uh, Debbie was working at the kennel. She was uh, actually working on a black French poodle. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me I don't get my facts, people. <laughs> <laughs> and Cheyenne's sisters, Wanda, who was 15, his other sister, uh, who was 13, and Mary, 9, were all there. They came to watch her groom because they just thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. Alan Bono was also there. Alan uh, decided a little later in the day that he was going to buy all of them lunch. So they went to this little bar called the Mug and Munch. It's like a restaurant bar. And Cheyenne and Debbie sat there and they had some wine. And they said that they had a little bit of wine, but Alan drank a lot. Oh, really? That's what they said. So after lunch, they all went back to the kennel. Uh, Cheyenne fixed Bono's stereo for him. I don't know what was wrong with it, so Mm -hmm. I'm sorry if I failed you on those details. Debbie took... um, the group out, the, the girls, she decided to take them out for pizza and left the two guys. So that's what they were doing then. Debbie said she told the girls to hurry up that they needed to get back. And Mary asked her, you know, why they needed to get back. And she was basically told that Debbie sensed something was going on. And she thought there was some kind of trouble. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know why she would have sensed that because everything was fine when she left. So when they get back, Bono urged them to go upstairs. He turned on the TV for them. And they, but they said as he's sitting there, he's kind of punching his hand, his fist into his open hand, just you know, mm-hmm. just kind of punching it, which means obviously something must have taken place while they were gone mm-hmm. because he was he seemed like he was kind of raging a little bit, and Debbie told everybody to kind of go go downstairs, 
But when she did this, Bono kind of grabbed Mary, which was the 13-year-old, or 15-year-old, I'm sorry, as she was trying to leave and wouldn't let go. So then Debbie walked over to him, and he eventually let Mary go. Now, Cheyenne at this time had been heading to the car when he kind of heard the commotion and saw what was going on. So he turned around and came back. He walked straight up um, to Bono and told him to let her go. Well, Wanda, the other, the 13-year-old sister, she said that it just broke from there. She said that the children ran for the car. Debbie Glatzel got between the two men. Uh, Wanda said she was right there, still close, and she tried to grab Cheyenne and kind of pull him a little bit, but she said he was like a stone. You couldn't budge him. And she said this guy was like kind of thin and wiry yeah. and... Mm-hmm. He shouldn't have very much strength, but apparently he had all kinds of strength here. So Wanda said that he started growling like an animal. And she said something, she she saw something shiny flash in the air a few times. And then she said it just stopped. When it was over, Bono stood there for a second, still pounding his fist, hand, fist into his hand. And she said then he just collapsed face up next to a five inch blade that Cheyenne always carried to use it for work. He had four or five tremendous wounds, including one that extended from his stomach to the base of his heart. Wait, he fell on the knife? No, he fell by the knife. Oh. He was stabbed. Oh. So that's Yikes. what the shininess that was. The shininess flashing. was. It oh was my the goodness. knife. And Cheyenne stared straight ahead walked into the woods in a trance-like state. So Bono died a few hours later at the local hospital, and Cheyenne fled the scene and was uh, apprehended several miles up the road shortly thereafter. Did any of the younger sisters know about what was happening in that with those two, as far as maybe being possessed or anything? No, they, they, they just, just, didn't have they a just know what they, what they saw. Mm-hmm. At that moment, so I don't think any of them. I okay. mean, well, they so may have. So sister never told or no. anything. Okay. So they arrest him. They charge him with first degree murder, and he claims he doesn't remember anything. Now this case was already exceptional, being that it was the first murder ever recorded in Brookfield. Things then took a very bizarre twist almost immediately. The day after the murder, Lorraine Warren informed Brookfield Police Department that Cheyenne Johnson was possessed when. Uh, he committed this murder. Hmm. How about that? Well, I mean, that would answer why I don't remember. This caused a media frenzy, as you can even come close to imagining in 1981. Cheyenne's attorney, Martin Manella, received calls from all over the world wanting to know about the demon murder trial. Mm-hmm. He traveled to England to meet with uh, lawyers on two separate cases, in England, there was two different cases to where uh, possession was kind of used as uh, a defense. Mm-hmm. One of them was an arson, and one of them was a rape, and both of them were, um, I guess, worked out and never went to trial. So they were like plea bargained down. But there had been cases to where this had been used as a defense, so he went over there to try to meet with these guys and try to find out, I guess, some ins and outs on what they did. Yeah, so I guess it, it's a good thing it wasn't back in the early centuries because they would have took him out right then and there and just done away with him. Oh, I guarantee. So police investigated the Warren's claims that he was possessed, but concluded that it was straightforward, open and shut case, 
uh, basically a fit of rage and jealousy during an argument. Mm -hmm. That's the way they saw it. Police said it was a fight over Cheyenne's girlfriend, Debbie. Uh, Martin Manella offered to take on this case for free, which I find very interesting. Mm -hmm. His plan all along was to use this demon possession as a defense was widely publicized. So it, it made just the fact that he he put it out uh-huh. that we're going to use this as a defense. It, it put it in all kinds of newspapers and on TV. So he planned on subpoenaing the um, priests that were involved yeah. mm-hmm. because shortly after the murder, the diocese actually stopped commenting on the case. They did acknowledge that they assigned some priests to investigate it. But it was more just to see what was going on with the boy. They claimed that there were no exorcisms done whatsoever. And part of the reason was that the family refused to take the uh, the boy for psychological testing. Oh. Which is part of what you got to do. They want to rule yeah. that out before well, they... And they course. refused to do that. So they say there was no exorcisms done. Thomas Lynch, who's the chancellor of the uh, Archdiocese of Hartford says that 99.99% of all people that claim to be possessed are not possessed, and more than likely they're schizophrenics. So that's why it was important to get that part done. In April, Johnson's attorney gained permission uh, to, to analyze the clothes and tissue remains of Bono, who had been cremated. So it didn't do him any good that he got the rights oh, to do that. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, that there's nothing there. They said that uh, the absence of blood, rips, or absence of wounds would prove that demons were involved. Yeah, but didn't he know they? Did he not know he was cremated before he asked for that? I have no idea. But I would think, even if that was the case, I would think they would have kept the clothes and stuff. I would thought that would have been evidence. Well, and I'm sure there was plenty of pictures of the body. Yeah, because they take that crime scene photos when they get there. So as it got closer to the trial, the Warrens in Manila. I've started drawing criticism from their peers saying that they were only involved in this for personal gain. The Amazing Kreshkin, you ever heard of him? Yes, actually. He, you know, he's got something out, and I don't know if he, I think he might have died here recently. Yeah, I think he, ha- I think he But did. he had a deal out for like a million dollars, I think it was, if anybody could prove the paranormal for like the last 30 or 40 years, mm-hmm. and he never had to pay it up because nobody could technically prove it. So oh, he was man. like one of these big skeptics. Of course, he's a famous magician. And, yeah. But... The whole deal with him, he said the Brookfield case is a simple uh, means for the Warrens to prey on the superstitions of the public. public. What's the public? <laughs> public. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's great. To prey on the superstitions of the public to build up their uh, annual lecture revenue. They have an excellent vaudeville act, he said. A good road show. <laughs> That's what he thought of the Warrens. <laughs> didn't think real highly of them. But then you also had local attorneys that they said Manila was only representing Johnson uh, to rake in publicity, and they didn't take the possession defense serious at all. Now, the Warrens, coincidentally, uh, their book, De- The Demonologist, started flying off the shelves after they uh, decided to speak out about this case. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, there was no paranormal activity, just people were buying them real right. quick. So, well, that's. I just want to make sure you knew that I, when I said flying off the shelf. That... I, I, <laughs> I caught you. Okay. <laughs> so people also blamed the Warrens for using the case as a publicity grab, as you could imagine. They were already talking about book deals to the family, and they were talking about making millions for the entire family. 
Lorraine said that she and her husband work closely with the church officials, and they view demonology as an extension of theology, and it would uh, defeat any purpose they had if they were being deceitful or dishonest. Well, there you go. Now, Manila admitted, on the other hand, to the press early that he thought handling this case would bring some good publicity and it would lead to some more lucrative cases down the road. So he, he already kind of admitted early that that was going to be the case. Now, during the jury selection, uh, which started in October of 1981, this thing moved along. Sounds like I it. I mean, they already got juries and stuff in October, and this stuff happened in February. Yeah. I mean, nowadays yeah. it's like a year and a half. Oh, I know. Anything. People flocked to see the uh, Demon Murder Trial, as it was called. The local Hilton Hotel was uh, booked for several nights in a row, so it couldn't get a room. The courtroom that held, um, um, I guess, the case itself would only seat 70 people, so it wasn't really big enough for what they had going on. People in there were shoulder to shoulder, they said. Mm-hmm. Many thoughts, um, many thought that he was going to use possession as an insanity defense, but instead he said that his whole point was he was going to prove that Johnson actually was possessed and he was going to prove that demons existed. Manila's plan was to use recorded audio of the exorcisms that the Warrens and the priest had made. And he even had some audio of Johnson calling out the demon, challenging him. So that was part of the plan. He was also going to question the priests involved. And these priests, who coincidentally had all been transferred to other dioceses. Oh, (laughs) nice. (laughs) None of them were there. uh, But just as fast as all this possession defense started, it was halted. Superior Court Judge Robert J. Callahan, who later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, said he refused to hear Manila's planned argument. He said, I'm not going to allow the defense of demon possessions, period. So Manila tried to have um, Callahan, like, disqualified from the case, and mm-hmm. it didn't work. So, Oh, it didn't? Yeah, no, it didn't work. And Callahan said that he isn't sure whether demon possession uh, is possible. He knows it's not a legal defense, though, and he considered uh, evidence of it uh, irrelevant and unprovable and pretty much confusing to a jury. So there, that's why he was not going to allow it. Prosecutor Walter Flanagan and the police stuck with a simple explanation. Bono made an obscene remark about Debbie. The two men fought before Cheyenne Johnson stabbed him. That simple. Now, the case wasn't exactly as exciting as the press liked it without the the demonology being able to be used. Yeah, but they weren't there. They don't know what happened. No, but it didn't matter because now all the stuff that the people were flocking to see wasn't going to happen. Well, I don't know. I I get that, but you can't go by what the popo said because they weren't there. (laughs) So what Manila was focused on, well, you may find out different, (laughs) though, as we get a little deeper in. Oh. So what Manila was focused on, uh, this whole demon prosecution thing, mm-hmm. and the prosecution, though, they blamed a different demon, alcohol. <laughs> you see what I did there? I did. A waitress at the Mug and Munch, which is an awesome name for a bar and restaurant, said that both men had drank a lot of wine. That evening, the group was in the apartment. Neighbors heard some noises from outside, loud noises, and they saw two people running towards Bono. The ambulance and the police, they get on the, on the 
scene of the crime, right? Mm-hmm. And they find Bono face up with four half moon stab wounds below his rib cage. The ambulance driver said, and this was huge on this case, he said that he heard Debbie tell her father, because they were right they were standing right next to the body. So he heard Debbie tell the father that, Oh daddy, he didn't mean to do it. You know how he gets when he's been drinking. Oh. That's what the ambulance driver overheard yeah. who had no reason at all to, For to, to give say it anything, in. yeah. The police officer said that Debbie's brother Carl said Shane did it. Well, that didn't mean anything to me because if he was possessed, he was still the one doing it. Yeah. Despite Callahan uh, banning this whole demon defense, Manella still tried to put up, pull the four priests together and put them on the stand, and Callahan wouldn't allow it. So the priests, even though they were subpoenaed, he wouldn't let them get on the stand. Ed Warren, who was supposed to be the big shot witness in this, was kind of delegated as just a character witness. So all he could basically do is get up there and say Cheyenne was a good guy. That's all his involvement could be. The demonology stuff, couldn't use any of it. I didn't know a judge could do that, I guess even after you've been subpoenaed. Well, I guess because if he's not going to allow that defense, there's no point in, in well, listening to him. Because he I doesn't just, want to confuse the jury. No, I, I totally get that. I just didn't know he had the power to do that. Well, because it's like not a fair, like, I would say it's not a fair trial because but, nobody got to hear the other stuff. Yeah, but if it doesn't involve science, they're not going to allow it in a courtroom. Hmm. Courtrooms are based on, that's not based on belief and conviction. Now, if you're talking about somebody's religion, I mean, if you're, if your religion tells you to, you're a Satan worshiper and your religion uh, tells you to make some type of sacrifices. Say you sacrifice live chickens. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that you can't be taken to court and charged for animal cruelty because your religion says you can do it? Nope. In this country, you could still be taken to court for that. Mm-hmm. If you say, hey, I need to make a human sacrifice once a month, they're not going to allow you to do that based on your religion. So therefore, the same thing applies here because there is a demon which would be a religious belief, they're not going to let that go because you can't prove you're possessed. Even about, you can show all the evidence. and It's like we talked about with ghosts and stuff like that. People will never believe unless they just believe. You can never convince a skeptic, you know, that ghosts are real because no matter what you show them that's proof, they're going, oh, that's not real proof. Yeah. Well, that's that's something else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's why. And because you you can't physically put your hand on it and prove it, you know, I'd be like, you know, they would do the same thing if it was reversed. If it was a lady saying an angel told her to do something and it involved a crime, they wouldn't allow that either. Oh, so oh, that's interesting. So anyways, um, so back to Ed Warren, he was del- uh, relegated to just being a character witness, which was nowhere near what he thought he was going to yeah. be the, you know, the Star big shot witness, that, yeah. that could tell you this and that, mm-hmm. and the expert witness more or less. But Ed was uh, only on the stand for a few minutes. He said that Cheyenne was quiet and considerate and that uh, he found it hard to believe that he could do this. Uh, and then they said, he, but then he reluctantly stepped down. So I don't think he went quietly, <laughs> so to speak. Mm-hmm. Now, since he couldn't use his original defense, he decided to switch to trying to use the self-defense. And he said um, he was going to have Cheyenne testify for himself. And... Cheyenne said that 
Bono was drunk, and he provoked the argument. He said that Bono ran at him with Cheyenne's knife. So Bono had the knife in this scenario. And he ran at Cheyenne, and and Cheyenne said he doesn't remember anything after that. Now, after 17 hours over three days, the jury convicted Arnie Cheyenne Johnson of manslaughter, not murder, on November 24, 1981. He was given a 10-year sentence, but was released on good behavior after five years. Wow. Cut in half. <laughs> like he did the guy. The guy. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so the case spawned the 1983 book, The Devil in Connecticut, which the Warrens were... I believe, involved with. Yeah. And an NBC movie called The Demon Murder Case, starring Andy Griffith. Yay! Cloris Leachman, and a very young Kevin Bacon. Oh my gosh. I need to watch this movie. Cheyenne married Debbie Glatzel on January 30th, 1985, a year before he was released from jail. They had two sons and two grandsons. Aww. And they live up in Connecticut still today. Well, that was a good ending, at least, to the story. Yeah. And just for further knowledge, she's a CNA and he uh, works for a construction company. Well, no kidding. He's a supervisor. Aww. So. Well, good for them. They said that he started off as a regular worker, got promoted to supervisor, and what they like about him is he's a huge cut-up. <laughs> Oh, so I guess he's not possessed no more then? No, let's get back on that topic. I don't guess there's been anything with him, but uh, keep in mind, this was 1981 when all this took place. But they said even uh, a couple of years after the fact that David, her little brother, was still having some incidents happen, even though it wasn't as often. See, that demon was in jail and he didn't like it too much so and let's talk about the financial side and i'm going off memory here i don't have any of this written down because somehow or another it slipped my mind until just now but recently within the last two or three years you've got carl senior and david the the who was the son this book that book devil in connecticut was released and it was like re-released and i don't remember what year but it was like 2012 or so it wasn't that long ago when it was re-released mm-hmm. And the Warrens said that they had paid the family, mm-hmm. you know, part for having this book. Well, some of the family members, uh, mainly David and Carl, said that all they got was like two thousand dollars. That was for it? the entire family. For the all, all the family, for the entire family, two thousand. So the whole family's still alive. I think most of them are, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now, what Carl was pissed about is he said the book made him out to be like this horrible dad. Uh, but yeah, but he wasn't even in it. I mean, well, they're saying he didn't believe it. In the book, I think he was more prevalent, but saying that he didn't believe in any of the stuff and it was just all BS. And okay. David said that they were taking advantage of his mental problems. Mm-hmm. His, um, I guess the fact that he was having a mental disorder back then and, and some personal problems. And he says that they were taking advantage of that situation. And that he says that he doesn't think he was possessed. He just think he had some mental issues. And mm-hmm. and they wanted to morph that into more than what it was and turn it into a possession because they knew they could make money off of it, the Warrens, I mean. Well, what do you think? Uh, knowing what I know about the Warrens, I'm sure that's probably pretty close what to it was. Right. I mean, when you have a situation where, let, let's take, let's say it is what it is. Let's say that David thinks he's possessed but he's not maybe it is some kind of schizophrenia or something a chemical imbalance who knows but let's say that's the case 
Well, now you got the Warrens in there constantly talking about this and talking about that, and they're talking about demons and the demons, demons, demons. So now everybody's consumed with the thought that it's demons. Now you got this 19-year-old kid, basically, and he's seeing all this. If he's not 100% right in the head, then maybe, you know, it's easy for him to talk himself into thinking he's possessed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's can cause some though. of the actions he was doing. Yeah. Now, let's remember everybody's treating him like he's this great boy. But there was a situation at his work where he did lose control. Yeah. There was a situation where Debbie told her dad, you know how he gets when he's been drinking. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows? You know, I don't I don't know how much any of that was true. It very well could have been the two guys arguing over it. Mm-hmm. It could have just been a jealous boyfriend. Yeah. And al- you mix alcohol in with that and, you know, a little bit of jealous rage. Who knows what happened? Well, I mean, that's terrible to do that if that's what the Warrens did because, you know, this kid's like thinking probably, what the heck is wrong with but me? But that's what the Warrens always did. I mean, you, you've got the situation with Amityville where most people believe that they were just told, hey, write the book and make it scary. You've got uh, The Haunting in Connecticut, which, you know, it's already came out to the fact that they, the the author of the book said, well, I've only got, you know, so much of it. They're not really cooperating. And they said, well, you got enough of it. Make the rest up. Mm-mm. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, my feelings for the Warrens are I think they were just a bunch of, I, I agree with the Amazing Kreskin. I think they were just a dog and pony show and they found a way to be able to, to make money. It's like I've said before on this show, you know, you don't just all of a sudden take a couple classes and call yourself a demonologist. Yeah. And then when they met, she wasn't a medium, but all of a sudden becomes a medium. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it can't happen. It just sounds right. very convenient. Yeah. That's just a shame, though, to drag people along with you like that, mess with their minds. Well, and if you remember also with um, the story with the parents, when we talked to uh, uh, Andrea, you know, she says that the Warrens were basically tracking her mom down and trying to get her to do this book and movie deal when they didn't want to do it. And, you know, but that's, she was so far, that's all they cared about was trying to get book and movie deals. So, I don't know. I I, I can't, I just find it hard to believe that they had their, the good of anybody other than themselves yeah, for any of these stories. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, for sure. So, well... What did you think about that story? Oh, it was really interesting. I liked it. I just really feel bad for that child. That's terrible to have to, you know, if you did live through that, nor just, like I said, having the Warrens try to convince you or tell you, you know, that that's what's happening or, But can know. Can a story have more involvement than what this one does? I mean, think about I, it. Yeah. You've got a possessed little boy. You've mm-hmm. got the Warrens getting involved. You've got that possession leading to another possession. Which leads to a murder. Yeah. Which is the first murder that's happened in 193 years of a town's existence, and then going from that to a trial mm-hmm. where they were using possession as a trying to use mm-hmm. possession as a defense for the first time. That's a lot of stuff for one story. That is a lot. But didn't that one wasn't there a lady that was used that? Well, yes and no. That was the one in Louisville. Yeah. Uh, Prospect, and we actually did the Patreon story right. for. And what her situation was is she killed her husband in self-defense, but she said that he was possessed, mm-hmm. and that's why she had to kill him. But she wasn't using possession oh, as a okay. defense. That's right. I knew it was something Per like se, that. but she was saying that was one of the reasons that he thought he was possessed, whether he was or wasn't, yeah. wasn't a factor, but he thought he was, so she feared for her life. 
So. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good story. So, well, without further ado. Well, yeah. Without further ado, we're without going to ado. we're going to go ahead and play this um, audio from Dina and Jeremy. And like I said, it starts off with uh, a little bit about their shows, but it gets into some awesome paranormal stories. So we had fun with this, and it's, and it's funny too, I think. Uh, if you've ever listened to Jeremy and Dina get at each other, they uh, they definitely say what's on their mind. There may be a little bit of cursing too, so I'll just give you a little heads up. <laughs> if you've ever listened to Twisted Philly, you know there's going to be some cursing, and she's obviously uh, rubbed off on Jeremy. So, <laughs> <laughs> but as usual, uh, I was a good boy. So, anyways, let's give this a listen, and we'll talk to you in a minute. All right, guys, we did a, a roundtable discussion with uh, Phil Holmes from Scared and uh, Worst Crimes Ever, and then we also had uh, Lee from So Way from, well, I, I can't ever remember his new damn show. It's <laughs> Realm of the Supernatural, but it used to be Don't Break the Oath, and a lot of people really like that. So I thought, I think I want to get two other podcasters on and tell us some scary stories, and I thought, well, who could I possibly hook up with? And then I thought, you know what? I've got the perfect two people. So who I have brought on for you guys tonight is Jeremy Collins from Podcasts We Listen To. You guys know the group on Facebook, and you've probably heard his show several times. And Miss Dina Marie from Twisted Philly. Uh, had the pleasure of spending time with both of these people in uh, the Waverly show that we did. And had a blast, and I thought, there's no doubt that's who I want to bring on. So guys, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us on, man. Oh, it's, it's no really it's good to be back. Yeah, Dina obviously was on about uh, almost a year ago, and uh, then I, we, me and Tracy were on Jeremy's show. So this is Jeremy's first time being on this show, and I'm yeah. sure I've confused everybody by now. So, <laughs> but before we go any further, you guys have a show you do together that uh, is fairly new, but it's very entertaining. It's called Educating Jeremy. Why don't y'all take a few seconds to tell us about that show? Thank you. Educating Jeremy is the podcast where we watch movies that I love, but Jeremy hasn't seen before because he hasn't seen very many movies. And then we talk about it. And that's as simple as it sounds. That's pretty much what it is. It's a good way for me to catch up on classic movies that I should have seen. And anybody who listens will go, how has he not seen that show that movie, you know, so. Because a lot of them are older movies. We've done two newer ones, but, you know, we've got, we could probably do a dozen over the holidays because a lot of the most beloved classic holiday films like Miracle on 34th <laughs> Street, It's a Wonderful Life. I think at one point I said to him, how the hell do you celebrate Christmas if you haven't seen movies like that? So, so it's a real mix. It's a mix of genres and um, we're always like shit talking each other. So, you know, if you like to listen to people pick at each other and poke fun at each other. It's good for that, too. And A Christmas Story is about the only Christmas movie I've seen. But we also talked about your podcast you know, on the episode the, about The Conjuring. I heard that. Um was very happy about that. It, it was, it's cool the way that you situate that show out because it is you watching a, a movie you haven't seen that Dina loves, but then at the same time, you kind of break it down almost not scene by scene, but section by section 
So you kind of go in chronological order of the movie and you talk about what you liked, what you didn't like, what was believable, what was not believable. So it really is a cool show in, in the fact that it is like a review, but there's also the nitpicking and stuff. That's what I like about it. <laughs> we should have you and Tracy on sometime. To find, we'll have to find something that Tracy loves that you haven't seen. You know, yeah. you guys come on educating Jeremy. I am, well, if he hasn't seen it, I probably, I am, I probably have it either. I am more like Jeremy than you would realize. The movies that I have not seen that everybody's seen, I've not seen Goodfellas. I've not seen Godfather. Oh my God! What? Any of the Godfathers? I've not seen. Oh my God! <laughs> I've not seen Reservoir Dogs. I'm oh, not, my such a God. Good movie. oh my Dude, God. if I'm freaking out about movies you haven't seen, that that's bad. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of them like that I haven't seen that people are like, "How in the world have you not seen that movie?" Reservoir Dogs, man. This there's a scene in there where Michael Madsen is torturing this dude and he's dancing to stuck in the middle with you while he's doing it it's just ah it's such a great movie man and the <laughs> cast in that movie that's probably my favorite harvey Keitel, steve buscemi mm-hmm. tim roth michael madsen well you can forget about michael madsen because he's a shitty actor but i like, I like michael madsen <laughs> i think he's a good actor well to each their own i guess <laughs> oh i'm sorry i'm sorry you might have to edit that out I didn't edit yeah, it. I didn't edit, edit it the other four times you said it. So that's pretty much how educating Jeremy goes. That pretty much is a, a nice little snippet of exactly how that show goes. Now, obviously, um, you both have great shows uh, separately with Twisted Philly and uh, podcasts we listen to. Uh, we're not going to touch a ton on those because I think most of our listeners already listen to those shows. But what I do want to touch on is another venture that we're all involved with. You two guys uh, have taken the lead on setting up, which is the Potter and Love Podcast Festival, August 10th to the 12th, that we promo on this show almost uh, every week now. Tracy and I are so excited to be a part of this, and we keep adding bigger shows every time you turn around. Jim Harold's now part of this, which is phenomenal. We've got uh, uh, Forrest from uh, Astonishing Legends who's going to be there, and and the the list just keeps getting bigger. Uh, Take a few seconds real quick to to give us a little update on where we're at on Potter and Love. Babe, do you want to start? I mean, this really was birthed from the PWLT community. (laughs) Well, it started because... Just over a year ago, I went into the group. Everybody was kind of getting amped up about CrimeCon, but not everybody's into true crime. And I was kind of looking around going, we've got podcasts from every genre in this group, literally every every genre. And I'm like, dude, we got 5,600 members in here. We could start our own podcast convention. And immediately, Dina and a couple of others were like, done, we're doing it. Because that's how we roll. <laughs> so, and it's kind of taken off from there. So now it's a real deal. It's going to be in New Orleans in August. And, you know, I hear people say sometimes, New Orleans, August, really? And I'm here to tell you, as a New Orleans native, if it isn't hot when you go to New Orleans, then you have not visited New Orleans. Besides that, the majority of the time people are going to be in the convention watching shows we've got this fantastic hotel it's got a rooftop pool i can't wait i am so excited about this thing 
And the big news that we had this week is we released the schedule. We have got an unbelievably packed two and a half days of incredible events and sessions and live shows. As Jeremy said, it's really, I call it genre agnostic because it's any podcast genre you could possibly consider. There's history, there's paranormal, there's movies and pop culture. We have Margot from Fit Bottom Girls is going to be doing some fitness on Saturday morning. So if people go out on Friday night and get a little hungover, we're going to have yoga and fitness with Fit Bottom Girls Saturday morning. There is diversity podcasting panels. There's true crime. There's so many different types of shows that are going to be there. And so there's really something for everybody. Um, And as you mentioned, Jerry, we just announced Forrest from Astonishing Legends and Jim Harold. Uh, the Sofa King podcast is going to be there. We've got Juliet Miranda, former rock journalist and host of The Unwritable Rant. There's going to be Generation f- Y, The Peripheral. Yep. So it's a it's a big mix of shows, and it's about a little less than three months away. And I would just encourage folks to follow Pottern Love. That's P-O-D-E-R-N-L-O-V-E on Facebook and Twitter. That's where you're going to get all the latest updates. We are constantly sharing information every day throughout the day. So follow us on social media, and our website where you can get tickets is www.pottern.love. One more quick thing. I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited about it. We were down at the hotel, was that March, babe? I think she just fell over. <laughs> <laughs> we were down at the hotel. You might edit that part out. <laughs> we were down at the hotel in March, I think it was, and it is so cool because it's a smaller hotel we could have gone for one of these huge massive hotels and they are around there but this hotel when we were talking to them they were like we're the perfect size that if you want you could fill this hotel with nothing but podcast listeners and podcast hosts and i was like that's perfect that's exactly what i want it's just the hotel to be like spring break for podcast listeners, you know, and it's two blocks from the French quarter. So you walk out the front door, you take a left five minutes, you're in the French quarter. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. And there are limited tickets. So to Jeremy's point, once we hit capacity for the hotel, we have to cut off ticket sales. So I would encourage folks, you know, if you're thinking about going, if you're on the fence, get off that fence, buy your ticket. You definitely don't want to miss this. This is, you know, the very first Potter and Love convention. This is it. There's never going to be a first again. There's going to be more, but this is the first one. And I don't know, I'm, I'm seriously excited about that. I love the idea that this is the inaugural one, you know, like the presenters, the attendees, everybody can say like, I was at the very first one. And I think that's, <laughs> and I think that's pretty cool. I think it is too. And I'll give you one more quick little insider bit between now and june 1st if you use the code pwlt for podcasts we listen to at checkout you're going to get 20 percent off your tickets and i also suggest following us on instagram because there might be some surprises coming that way too look at you giving away all the secrets and the discounts yeah that's a lot better than a 10 percent i was going to give them so yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we've all, all the participating podcasts have a 10% discount. Um, this is a special discount for PWLT members. And I would say for Hillbilly Horror Story podcast listeners, too. Like Jeremy said, only good through June 1st. 
Now, your 10% ticket's going to keep going, or 10% code, that's going to keep going until we hit capacity. It's just a real quick limited time thing. I honestly did not think, and I'm sorry if I stepped on your toes with that 20% code, man. No, 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 not at all. I'm like you guys. I I just want to get as many people out there as possible, and if we can save them uh, a few extra dollars by doing that, I'm all for it. Here's the other big difference. It's going to be so fun, right? Yeah, it is going to be a blast. And, And the other big difference is we're actually feeding people. Now, I can't say we're feeding you like a full dinner, But a lot of times I go to conventions personally, I go for work, I go to comic stuff, I go to podcast stuff, I go to horror stuff. Ain't nobody giving me food. I can make a full dinner off of cheese puffs, babe. Right? So (laughs) that's one difference. The other really cool thing is, so the hotel's given us a sick rate. Like, the rate is nuts. $129 a night for a premier French Quarter hotel. Oh, I don't think I told you. I went and checked their regular website. That's like $100 a night off. I know. I know. Like, that's how much, that's how excited they are about us coming in there. What they told us is once we book a certain number of rooms, they're going to drop the rate again. And if people have already booked their rooms, they don't have to worry because they'll credit those reservations, the difference between the 129 and whatever they drop it to again. So it's possible that 129 a night could go down from there, which is just ridiculous. There's no way you're getting a better rate on a room in the French quarters. They're taking such good care of us, and the time that we spent there in January, not March, was it was it was exceptional. <laughs> I mean, the service that we got was absolutely exceptional. So I think end to end, it's going to be amazing. And What's a gen? Oh, in March I was in Philadelphia. That's right. Oh, imagine that you were out here with me. Hmm. Mm. So Tracy and I actually get to be a part of uh, basically every day. I know we're we're in one of the very first. Um, panels on friday which is the first day of the event and uh, i think that's the uh, paranormal panel and then um, i get to introduce forrest uh, which is one of my podcast idols so i'm excited about that for when uh, he does his little live event and then we've got a dark myths panel that tracy and i are part of and then we get to do a live show that's one of the last events of the closing on sunday so we're going to be all over this thing so anybody listening who uh for God knows why, would want to see more of us, you could get basically four different events of us at the uh, the festival. Hey, man, I've seen your live show. I was in Louisville. Dina was there, too. Don't try to bullshit, man. You put on a good live show. So if any of your listeners haven't seen your live show, they love the podcast. They're going to love that, too. Yep, and we got, um, I'm not going to tell people what our story is, but it's going to be New Orleans related. So we've already picked out the story we're going to do, and and uh, we'll just say it involves a couple of brothers who were suspected vampires. And anybody oh, who's, who knows nice. New Orleans will be able to figure it out. I'm not going to say what it is. Well, and that's one of the reasons why one of the first panels that we have when the convention kicks off is paranormal, because New Orleans is such a renowned city for history and ghost stories. And, you know, I think that the two always go hand in hand, right? You can't talk about the haunting without the history. So we figured we'd kick it off and really set the tone for what the city is. And I'm excited you're going to be a part of all those all those sessions. So since that's the perfect segue into what we're doing, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about what you guys had going on, especially with Potter and Love. But we brought you guys on to tell us some ghost stories. And... Um, I don't care who starts. I know Jeremy's got a, a boatload from his days of, of living in New Orleans and 
he well he's lived in Wyoming, so my God, that's there can't be anything scarier than that. And then, uh, <laughs> and Dina's got uh, her fair share of stories too. So which one of you want to pony up and go first? Jeremy's going to go first. All right, I'll Jeremy. go first. Where do you want me to start, man? You... Let me give you a little background here. I guess my grandparents came over on both sides. Came over from Ireland, so. I'm about as Irish as you could get without being actually born in the mother country, if you will. And my family is super superstitious. We have this history of having dreams that come true. And I know that your listeners probably less so, but this is one of those things you hesitate to tell people because they tend to go, okay, this guy's full of shit. Oh, can we cuss on here? What I do is when you tell me that, you had a dream. I'm always afraid. Like, what was it about? What was it about? It wasn't about me, was it? Because I know <laughs> you guys have all those fucking freaky dreams that sometimes come true. I don't want to say the wrong thing, so you can feel free to bleep me out if you want. What I no, what you're I good. Get a, you're uh, good. Carried away, but I grew up having dreams that came true, and I grew up experiencing things. And when I was about 25 or so, I was talking to my mom about it, and I was like, "This is really kind of fucked up." That. You know, these things keep happening to me. And, and just out of the blue, she goes, well, you know, I guess I should tell you that runs in the fam. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, yeah. It, I mean, it skipped me, but your grandmother has dreams that come true. And she also feels things and sees things. And I'm like, I'm 25, ma. You're just now telling me this. <laughs> well, it's just like diarrhea. It runs in your genes. <laughs> Not this week, but you're right. So my earliest experience that I can really remember that's ghost-related, not dream-related. Dina's heard this story before, but when I was, I don't know, summer between fourth and fifth grade, we were moving, actually leaving Louisiana and going to Mississippi, but we're only moving about 20, 30 miles away. And my brother and I were staying at my best friend's house and we were so close that they lived directly behind us and we had cut a gate into the fence between the houses and we just you know walk into each other's back doors hey what's up and it's late at night there's me my older brother my best friend all staying in his bedroom and as boys tend to do we're up late at night we're talking probably driving his parents insane because we're laughing and giggling and stuff and we start getting hungry so we're like hey you know what let's go to the kitchen we'll get a little snack no big deal the way this guy's house was set up you walk out of his bedroom you're in a hallway that's running left to right you take a right and you five steps or so you enter into the living room and diagonally from where that hall is to the opposite corner you would walk through into the kitchen right next to that entrance is a recliner we come out of the hallway and step into the living room my brother and my best best friend are still kind of whispering back and forth and doing their thing let's go get some chips and let's get this I step into the room and I almost have a heart attack because there's a man sitting in that recliner and he's looking at me. He's dressed to the nines and his hair slicked back, just perfectly quaffed, perfect suit, shine shoes. I can remember this like it was yesterday and I could see the guy. I mean, he was rock solid to me and he looks at me with this look and it's this you know me and I know you 
and you know who's in charge here. It was that kind of look. And he gives me this kind of grin, just one corner of his mouth, smirk kind of, you know what's up, kind of look. And it scared me more than I could possibly tell you. It went straight through my soul when I saw this guy. And my brother and my best friend didn't see him. I freaked the fuck out, and I ran back into the bedroom. And they went about their business like it was no big deal. And I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of things. (laughs) Dina knows. I've told her most of it. I've seen a lot of things, and I've felt a lot of things. But I've never felt anything like this. It wasn't seeing an apparition, and it wasn't a mist. It wasn't... It it did not have the feel of some soulless thing that's just there. This was a being with intent, and it was powerful. Now, at the time, all I knew was this thing is real. It knows me, and it scares the shit out of me. Like nothing in my young life at that point had ever scared me. But now, looking back on it... It scares me even worse than that because in all the things I've felt and experienced and seen, there's never been anything like it. It was, I'm telling you, it was a being. It was not my imagination. And the look it gave me, just that look of, you know me and I know you and you know who's really in charge here, was the most terrifying thing I had ever seen at that point. So any idea on who that was? Did you find out later in life, stumble across an old photo, anything like that? I don't know. I haven't. I've never stumbled across an old photo. I've never honestly gone looking because I don't I don't know if I want to know. But, you know, Dean has asked me, do you think it was a demon? And I don't know. I honestly, when I think of demon, I think of something a little more chaotic and something a little more out of control. And maybe that was another scary thing about this dude is that he was 100% in control. He was there. I mean... This is one of those things, like I said, you tell people and they're like, you're out of your fucking mind. You're nuts. You're whatever. You're full of shit. But I'm telling you, he was there. And the only reason, I firmly believe, the only reason that my brother and my friend didn't see him is because he didn't want them to. That's like some Randall Flagg shit right there. (laughs) Y'all know. Y'all know who Randall Flagg is. So I'm 45 years old. I do know who Randall Flagg is, by the way, baby. (laughs) But... I'm 45 years old, and at the time, I was between 4th and 5th grade. This was um, pre-Angel Heart, but that's who it reminded me of. When I saw that movie later on, I was like, holy shit, because it looked, in a lot of ways, it was very similar to Robert De Niro in that movie, except this guy was very clean-cut. I don't know if that's the right word, but he was, there was nothing, not a speck out of place. It was almost too perfect, you know? Did you ever ask your friend if, you know, they had like an uncle or his grandfather maybe passed away in the house or did did you ask your friend or his family about it? I didn't because for one, I was young, but they also moved into that house after we were already living in our house. Because see, we were the first house in that neighborhood Hmm. and they built the rest of the neighborhood after we had moved in. So it's new construction, so it's not like it had much of a history. Right. I had the distinct impression it was there for me. 
it wasn't that it was there because this is hey this is the place i haunt this is where this is my digs man you know what are you doing in my house it, was, it wasn't like that it was like i'm here for you i'm here to show you that i know about you well he's not welcome here in philly you are but he's not i'm just putting that out into the universe he sounds a lot to me like Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glenn Ross. That's what I'm picturing in my head. <laughs> Did he say anything at all about coffee is for closers? Because I'm just curious if... No, he did not say anything about coffee as for closers. That's a great movie, by the way. Yes, it is. I'm surprised you've seen, seen it. it. I have seen it. Thank you. And fuck right off. <laughs> no, another big one that I haven't seen, Tombstone. Oh, that's a good movie. You know, it was you know it was so tough when that movie came out. It came out like right around the same time that Wyatt Earp came out, and they were both such good films. Although one just seemed a bit more focused on history, and one was a bit more Hollywood. But Val Kilmer was amazing. I'll be your help. he was amazing. That was such a good. Yeah, I was gonna say the same thing. Val Kilmer in that movie, it was perfect. And now it looks like now it looks like he ate white bur- herb. So <laughs> no, I don't care. Yeah. He still looks he still looks good to me. That's all right. He's got to be three times the size he was with that baby. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see him fit in that cockpit now in Top Guns. Um, <laughs> I feel the need the need for speed. So, so Jeremy, that's I feel a screw- the need the need for Twinkies. <laughs> <laughs> that's a screwed up story, uh, to say the least. And it'll take a, a few seconds for me to uh, completely process how I would feel in that situation. But I got a feeling Dina's probably got a story that might be able to rival it. Am I right or am I wrong? I don't know. I don't think it'll rival it because I, I so my experiences with the paranormal, I, I've never had as many as Jeremy has. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with something a little a little lighter because so, I, I swear to God, I feel like I need to recover from that, babe. You went a little, you shared a little bit more than you had before the first time I heard that story. I'm not well, going to lie. I'm a little scared. I didn't, I didn't tell that movie, that, that movie I had a little bit of angels envy. So <laughs> um, I didn't tell that story so that I could like start it off with the Bob. That was just the first experience for me. Yeah. And I've had lighter experiences. And as you know from, I think, being around me at Waverly, I've had some darker experiences. Yes, you have. But anyway, your story, baby doll. So I'll I'll start with, I'll start with something, I'll start with something light. Um, Actually, you know what? Maybe I'll start with something even smaller than that. And then I'll, and then I'll do this one. One of the strange things that I found out. So where I grew up, um, one of the houses I lived in, interestingly enough, was also new construction. And we never had anything happen there. We never had anything strange, paranormal, nothing. Um, my grandmother, when I was, my grandmother passed away when I was 14. She did not pass away in our house, but she did live with us for a while before she passed away. She, um, she got sick and, and we had her move in with us and cared for her until it got to the point where her doctors said she needs full-time medical care, not full-time family care. And I found out from my old neighbor that the family that moved in after us, the house was haunted. They had paranormal experts come out. They had a priest come out. Not that it was necessarily malevolent, but they were just really uncomfortable. And more often than not, they said it was the ghost of an older woman. So I often wondered if that would have been my grandmother Um, although she never struck me as the kind of person that would linger and she certainly didn't linger. I mean, we never felt her presence in the house, but yeah, after we left, um, we heard a lot of stories from my neighbors that the people that bought the house 
we're dealing with a haunting. <laughs> so I'm going to start with um, kind of a short, short story. One of my ghost experiences goes back not as far as Jeremy's, but I'd say probably the early 90s. And it takes place in a town, not even a town, it's a a little area of a town called uh, Militia Hill. So literally, it is a hill in a a town called Plymouth Meeting, which is in a a suburb north of Philadelphia. And when you hear the words Militia Hill, it might call to mind imagery of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, and it absolutely should. It was this hill that was in the middle of a V. Two roads had been built on either side of it. And at the center of that V was my ex-husband's parents' house. And the house was at least 200 years old. I think it might have been 250 years old or or more. It was, oh my God, it was so old. It's incredible. And it literally sat up on this hill and it had retaining walls on either side in the front of it. And then behind it was the rest of the property was hill. And so Militia Hill literally was on the way to the Battle of Germantown. Troops would pass through Militia from Germantown to Valley Forge. Very historic area and, and an area that was um, traversed by Revolutionary War soldiers and Civil War soldiers. Where I live in suburban Philly, I'm right near Valley Forge Park. I mean, literally, it's within walking distance. So I've got so much history of, of America right around where I live. So this is going back to the probably the early 90s. I was at my ex-husband's house, who was my then boyfriend. And because the house was so old, even though it was super cool, it it, it needed some work. Um, it didn't have a driveway. It had like this tamped down or stamped down area of the yard behind the house that was a gravel driveway. And one night, my my ex and I were we were outside, just just kind of hanging out, talking, standing by his car, and we st- we heard footsteps on the gravel. And so, initially, I thought it was probably one of his friends. He's he's a musician. A lot of his friends were musicians. They kept strange hours, and you know they would just show up any time of the day or night. So, we both turned around to look down the driveway, thinking. One of his buddies probably pulled up on the street and was was coming up the driveway, and there was nobody there. Now, on the upper hill at the back of the property, his father had installed a, a telephone pole. His father used to work for Pico, and there was a giant floodlight that was motion-activated because the property was very dark and there weren't streetlights nearby. So putting that up there was, was definitely a safety measure if, if somebody was trying to get on the property and cause some mischief. And... As we hear the footsteps, the floodlight kicks on and we see a shadow moving across the side of the house. There's nobody there casting the shadow. And based on the shape of the shadow, it looked like it probably could have been a Union soldier. And obviously shadows have no discernible features. They don't have a face. And it wasn't like a creepy shadow person. It was literally a shadow you would cast if you were walking in sunlight or walking under a floodlight. And so we continue to hear the footsteps on the gravel and we see this shadow move down the side of the house until it moved past the house, off the gravel and down the street. So I start flipping out, right? And I'm cursing and I'm like, holy crap, holy crap. Oh my God, did you see that? Did you see that? My ex-husband, again, my then boyfriend at the time, he is probably one of the, the most even keel, laid back people you would ever want to meet. And so he's like, well, you know, sweetheart, that's not surprising considering where the house is and the history and, you know, the battles. Like it was just something expected and customary and very organic. And I think growing up in that location for him, you know, he'd mentioned times where 
family members had claims, not necessarily experiences in their house, but more experiences around the property and this enormous field that used to be across the street. So he was never really the sort of person that believed in ghosts, but it's very hard to not have at least an open mind when you see something, when you see a shadow and you hear it making noise on the ground, but there's no body casting that shadow and you're not the only one who sees it. So I'm standing there like, shit, that was a ghost. We just saw a ghost. And his response is like, well, you know, the Revolutionary War and the Civil <laughs> War and where we live. And yeah, those kind of things are going to happen. Like It was just nothing. Like, I'll take another beer, thanks. It's what it was like for him. So, you know, my experience, obviously, was it wasn't scary. It was m- much more surprising and exciting. And I think because, and, and he and I talked about it afterwards and, and the shadow definitely, and it was, it was more that the head, because the head looked like it had that unmistakable shape to the cap on it of a union soldier. So to me, it wasn't scary at all because it just felt like, it felt like a moment in time or a moment in history had just punched through and come into present day. And it walked on off the driveway and that was it. You know, it's funny you talk about his nonchalant approach to it. And that's the way I felt at Waverly. I mean, to me, I mean, there wasn't one moment in Waverly where I felt scared or weird or felt like anxious. I mean, it was just like I was walking through any other place. Could have been, the you know, the supermarket. And I felt exactly the same way. To me, it was just cool being there. And that was just my approach to it. And I know, like, when we were at the part where we were looking at the shadow people and stuff, because um, you were on the same, you were on one of the same tours as, as we were. And... You know, there's there, the, when you're on the fourth floor and they're doing the shadow people, there was some people that were just totally freaked out by that. And then for me, it was like, oh, well, that's cool. I can see that. That's pretty cool. And it's like, ho-hum. It got, I could have been looking at, you know, just <laughs> a, a two-liter sitting on a, a table as far as I was concerned. It just, I don't know. That's just my approach to it because I've seen so much that it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. I guess if I didn't believe it, it existed or was really skeptical about it, things like that existing i would probably look at it different but to me it's just a given just like you know hey there's you know going to be you know snow cones after the little league game or you know mm-hmm. women can't drive or you know just givens <laughs> dina marie had her own experience at waverly you know i was getting ready to ask you about that because i know yeah. we haven't yeah. really talked a whole lot since waverly but the one thing that i have gotten uh, out of you dina was I think the quote you said when I asked what you thought about Waverly, you said, I liked some parts of it better than the other. And it was said in a way where I was like, I need to just leave that alone. So explain. I, I enjoyed going to Waverly and, and learning the history about it. And I I think I enjoyed your episode. Not even I think I know. I enjoyed listening to you talk about it more than I enjoyed certain parts of the tour. I had a really I had a really unpleasant experience on the fourth floor. So when you say you saw some shadow people and it was, you know, not anything earth shattering, I can't tell you if I saw anything or not because I did not open my eyes from the moment we stepped onto the fourth floor until we left. I was I had the most horrible, unnerving sensation. And it absolutely could have been mind over matter that I got myself worked up and was just afraid to see something. And so I'm just going to not see it. I'm going to keep my eyes closed. So maybe those unpleasant sensations I was feeling were more anxiety than actual um, presence. Or that could have been my fault. Or I do think, I do think it could have been, 
I, I don't think it was just anxiety. I know that was part of it. But part of the problem was I was feeling I was feeling so unsettled. It, it was just unsettling is probably the best way to describe it. And I've made jokes on Twisted Philly before. I was raised Catholic for a long time. And then in my you know middle teens, around 14, 15, we, we moved and started attending an Episcopal church. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize priests were normal, decent people and could be married and have a family and I can go babysit their kids. And, oh, it's fun to be in the choir. Like it was just it was a much more community experience than the experience I had previously had attending, being forced to attend Catholic church all the time. Um, but, and, and I wasn't married Catholic and I consider myself just a Christian. I more often than not, I go to Episcopal church, but when I am like fearful of something like that, like something ominous, you better believe I fall real quick back into those Catholic roots. Right. (laughs) So like if I would have had a rosary there, I would have been doing the rosary beads. So I'm standing there and I started praying and I don't even I don't even remember why I started it. It was more like a compulsion. And I started praying and I was doing the Our Father. And the Our Father isn't a Catholic prayer. It's a Christian prayer. Jerry, I couldn't say it right once. And I was, I wasn't praying out loud. I think Jeremy heard me. I was holding onto his arm and, you know, I was standing very close to him. So I think he probably heard, maybe heard a few words. I don't know if you heard exactly what was coming out of my mouth, but. I heard whispers. I, I couldn't get it right and that scared me because you know we have we have these jeremy and i have these really deep discussions about the devil and satan and how i don't really believe in it but i guess somewhere in the (laughs) i guess in the deep recesses of my mind i must because i'm always so scared of movies about the devil and about satan and so the fact that i couldn't get the our father right if i was saying it out loud even though it was a whisper had me terrified that there was something really nefarious there so so then I started saying the Hail Mary, and that was fine. I could say the Hail Mary, end to end, no problem. I switched back to the Our Father. I can't get it right. I could get it right in my head, but I couldn't get it right when I was whispering it. And that got me so scared, like like the way they say when you know a demon is present and you can't speak the words of the Our Father. So that that was my experience on the fourth floor. And then, you know, they they gave visitors the opportunity to walk down the hall where these shadow figures were a bit more prevalent and Jeremy walks down the hall and and I don't want to take your story away but no, all no, I but the people around me are standing there saying oh oh did you see that did you see that thing reach out for him oh 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 it looks like it's grabbing him oh my god look it's 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 trying to like wrap its arms around him and I, I wouldn't open my eyes so I'm sorry babe it's <laughs> probably lousy I was so scared and I and I I know and I believe with all my heart that you do have this like sixth sense that you just feel things a little bit deeper than the rest of us, right? I and so I was shut up, you guys see dead people. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was scared for you going onto that fourth floor. Not that you would be scared, but I was I was scared for you wondering about how you would feel and sense things and how presences would feel and sense you because i think what happens even just some of the time we spent walking around the sealbach hotel from the things you've described to me and from reactions i've seen you have when we're in these historic haunted places i don't necessarily know that it's you reacting to a presence i feel like the presence is like oh jeremy's here all right air just got a little warmer the electricity's up all right we're gonna start messing with this guy 
And that's what I was scared of on the fourth floor. And so I still wouldn't open my eyes, even though I heard people talking like something was grabbing you. I just started praying harder. I started praying harder. I want to say something before we get too far away from it. Dina and I don't just sit around having conversations about Satan. Well, no, I, I think she made it clear know, that you did. Just to clear that up, she mentioned that we have these deep discussions about Satan. We don't just sit around having discussions about Satan all the time. No, well, but we will we will talk about movies. So I have never seen. We've gotten into a lot of in depth conversations about you know our own spirituality yes. and religion. I mean, we talk about politics and and everything, but you know when it comes to introspective conversations about our spirituality and about religion and what it means to us or what it doesn't mean to us those do tend to get pretty deep and i think too since starting educating jeremy since we talk about movies all the time i have never seen the exorcist end to end i can't get through it i'm terrified of that film and so we would have we've we've had conversations about the premise of that film and okay maybe i didn't use the right words for people who think we sit around and like we're satan worshipers we're not we're not but (laughs) I I am very scared of movies that are connected to the devil. So for me to say I don't believe in the devil, I have to really ask myself, well, maybe somewhere you do because you're terrified of movies about the devil. So that that's that was really sort of how that conversation about Satan came about. That was the impetus for that conversation. But that was my experience at Waverly. It was it was a great night. So I don't want to in any way diminish what what you put together for us because it was a great night. The building is unbelievable. And it was so cool to be there with with so many people that also share your interest in history and paranormal and education and, you know, and, and really learning. I mean, there was a lot of education there, too. But that fourth floor, man, when, when they said we were going to the fourth floor, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. And the, the lady's like, yeah, you are. That's how you're getting out. <laughs> And I said, well, we just don't have to stop at the fourth floor. Like, that isn't how I get out. I could just keep going down the steps without having to walk onto the fourth floor. But clearly that was not an option. There's two things I'd like to hear I was terrified of that fourth floor. (laughs) Oh, and then, oh, my God, do you remember the person pulled my shawl? That was one of the things I wanted to hear your take on. And the other is the footsteps. You have to tell. I've been talking too much. You tell a story, and then I'll come back to that. Okay, I'll tell. The most recent thing for me was actually in Louisville. Um, not, I'm, I don't know how much I want to talk about Waverly Place, but at the hotel, the Sealbach, we had heard stories about the blue lady of the Sealbach. And my knowledge of it was basically that some woman had died. She's been seen around the hotel. She must be, is she wearing a blue dress? Something like that. But they call her the blue lady. And I, honestly, I hadn't paid that much attention to it. And then hearing Dina Marie and Diane from History Goes Bump talking, the story came out that she had fallen or possibly been pushed down the elevator shaft. And Diane had taken a tour, and they talked about how if you're standing on the street in front of the hotel, the elevator that she fell down was in the front of the hotel on the right-hand side. Well, during the course of the weekend, we're going into the hotel room, and I start telling Dina, there's something here in our hotel, not in our hotel room, but outside of our hotel room. There's, in this hallway, there's something here. There's a presence, and it's not a malevolent presence. It's nothing bad. It's more like, it's curious. Like, it wants to figure out what's going on, or like, it's kind of waiting here to 
you know, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> you know. I think at one point you said it felt you felt like it wanted to come in the room with you. It felt like it wanted to hang out with us. Was kind of the feeling like it did want to come in the room, but it wasn't coming in our room. There was to me there was a distinct barrier between the hallway and our room, and we were in the opposite corner from of the hotel from where the blue lady had reportedly fallen to her death and so one day one of the days that we were there after this has been going on a couple of times just me and her you know shopping or going to lunch or whatever we come back to the hotel room and i'm telling her you know i feel like there's something here and one of these days we pop up into the hotel room lot or the ho- we go into the hotel lobby i'm stuttering now and there's this dude there that Dina recognizes and says, are you Mr. Larry? Mr. Larry? <laughs> Mr. Larry. <laughs> the hotel historian is who he turns out to be. And he starts telling us the story of the blue lady. And in his telling, and this dude, I mean, if, if somebody knows something about this hotel, it's this guy. He knows everything. He has literally written a book about it. And he says, you know, they always tell people that it's in this front elevator that we're standing right next to. That's not where it went down. It was actually in the opposite corner over there. And I'm like, what the fuck? It turns out that the elevator shaft, she had fallen down. And we were on the, were we on the eighth floor? We were on the eighth floor. We were one floor below where she went, where she was she pushed. Had, she had been pushed from the ninth floor down an elevator shaft and i'm telling you right in front of our door directly to the left of our so we're in the corner room directly to the left on the wall that runs away from our room there's a a door there that says service personnel only or something to that effect just inside that door is the elevator that she was pushed down where she was murdered and I said to Jeremy and, and Diane when she told us about the ghost tour that she took and what the tour guide pointed out as the elevator, I said, I don't I don't think that's the elevator because, you know, I, I will go back through newspaper archives into the 1800s if that's what it takes from a research perspective. And so I did, did a lot of research before going to Louisville about this woman and, and who she was and what might have happened. And I'm hoping to get Mr. Larry on Twisted Philly, even though it's about Louisville, but I, I think it would be really enjoyable. She wasn't found at the bottom of an elevator shaft. She was ba- she was found on the top of the elevator car, which means somebody had to pry open the elevator doors and push her through. And, the, and this woman was 24 years old, slender, tiny. It's not something she would have been able to do. And she was found in a service elevator. And... You know, especially back in the 1930s, guests would not have had access to that. It's not as easy as it is today for me to just open a door that says employees only and say, oh, look, babe, there's the service elevator where the woman was murdered. Right. So that we we were next to the elevator. Our room was adjacent to the elevator shaft where this woman was murdered, the woman who is reported to haunt the Seelbach Hotel. And we didn't find that out until pretty soon before, I guess, late in the day on Saturday. Um, yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea when I was telling her that I was feeling something outside of our hotel room in the lobby or in the in the hallway that that was five feet from where this woman had fallen down the elevator shaft. I've got a a quick tidbit about that story. It's uh, probably something you haven't run across in in what you were researching, but I go down to the uh, the Jefferson County Courthouse in Louisville all the time, 
And there's one office down there to where they've got the newspaper article from the Courier-Journal up about that. And she's got the book that was written on the Blue Lady before that. And when the book came out, it had a lot of, uh, you know, stories about what happened. And there's a prosecuting attorney down there that's about 75 years old, and he's got a lot of free time on his hand. And him and, and this young lady in this office uh, were talking about the story, and he's like, I just don't think that's how it happened. So he actually went out. This goes back several years ago now. He went out, and he actually started researching it as if he was prosecuting a case and found out a mm. lot of the details. So one of the newer uh, articles written in the last three or four years in the Courier-Journal actually came from evidence and stuff that he dug up, treating it like he would a regular case. Whoa. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty cool. cool. Oh, I'm gonna have to look for that because I didn't look for anything. You know, I I found some stuff written by Larry, the hotel historian, that that went back to the Brigadier General that was having an affair with her. She she worked at a brothel and 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 everything associated with that. And I didn't share everything he talked to us about on the show because I, I would really like him to come on and tell the story. But but besides whatever he wrote, because I knew I was going to be keeping an eye out for him, I didn't look for anything recent. I was just searching through. 1936 up through like 1945 to see what I might be able to find. That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty cool story. But they've actually got the newspaper article hanging up in that office and everything. And that's when I was talking to the young lady. We I asked about it, and she told me the whole story, and I thought it was pretty cool. Wow, I'll have to look for that. All right, so we're getting ready to wrap this thing up. But I wanted to mention uh, The Exorcist. You were talking about that. That's my favorite movie of all time, and it's. To me, the most horrifying movie of all time. And I'll tell you why. Maybe that's this is why you think this way, too. I think when it comes to most horror movies, you think Freddy, you take Michael Myers, you take stuff like that. Yeah, there's killers out there, but we already know that. And, and we know that in most cases, a killer is not going to sneak into your bedroom and, and kill you while you're sleeping. You know, those things are scary, but... They just seem out of the realm of possibility. Right. Or somebody can come in and save you. But when it comes to The Exorcist, as soon as I heard, and I was probably, when that when that movie came out, I was like 10, 11 years old. But when you hear it's based on a true story, and at that level you don't know what part is true, what part's not. You just hear it's based on a true story, and you see that movie, and you think there is absolutely nobody if this is true, that can step in and save you. Because in that movie, the priest couldn't even save you. I mean, right. he did to a certain extent, I guess, but nothing they were doing before then was working. And I think that's the part that you just feel like, if the devil wanted to come in and possess you, he can just do it, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think that's what made it so scary. I'll tell you the other reason, and it'll be quick, I'll tell you the other reason why I'm so scared of that movie. So I was four when it came out, and... We were living with my grandparents at the time, and I, I can see this in my mind. My mom and dad went to see The Exorcist. And I don't even know how long, at what point in the movie it was, but my mother went out to the lobby and called home to have my grandfather come get her because she didn't want to stay and watch it. She was terrified. And my father was like, that's not cool. But he was like, no, man, I paid for the tickets. I'm watching this. So she called my grandfather to come pick her up. And I remember sitting there with my grandmother and my, my grandparents had these wrought iron gates that, that separated the living room from the entrance hall in their house, which I know sounds crazy, but I, I remember peeking through the gate waiting for my mom to get home. And when they walked in, she was hysterically crying. She was that scared. And I, and I think that memory stays with me of seeing, you know, as a little girl, seeing my mother 
that scared by that movie. So I think for me, that's part of it too. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's very I scary agree movie. that it is a great movie and it is absolutely terrifying. And something that freaks me out about it is that when you're watching something like the conjuring and you're seeing the Warrens and it's playing them up and, you know, you have the Warrens who stand to make money out of it, so they wrote the book or something like that. There's always somebody seeking publicity of some kind. And the thing about The Exorcist is it's based on a book that was written by a priest about his experiences. And the kid, it was actually a boy that Reagan is supposed to represent the little girl in The Exorcist. In reality, it was a little boy. Yep, Roland Doe. Nobody knows who he is because he's never come forward because he doesn't want to be known for being that kid. He's never made any money off of it. He's never gotten any publicity off of it. And the, that fact alone freaks me out because it lends some credence to the story I'm sure that Hollywood embellished some of it, but there's also the possibility that like Andrea Perrin said on your interview with her, Hollywood didn't think anybody would watch it, thought it would be too scary. So they toned it down and that's a possibility too. Maybe Hollywood really toned it down so that they could get viewers in the seats. You know, the, the story on that movie, if there, there's a, a couple of really good documentaries about the, the making of that movie. It's fascinating in its own right because that movie was low budget. Uh, Linda Blair didn't even go to the screening because her mom felt like it was not something she needed to see. And, yeah, I wouldn't want my kids yeah. see it even if she was Linda Blair. And they were putting it on, like, their, the main advertisement was like on city buses that they were advertising the movie and people were complaining about that. And, but yeah, they, the, I can't remember if it was 20th century or whoever it was that, that did it, but they pretty much sunk all of their money into the advertising of this movie to just hope that it would make something. And when it was such a huge hit, it resurrected the whole, uh, uh, film company. So yeah, that, that movie pretty much, you know, paved the way for everything that's came after it uh from from that studio so and i can't remember the studio but yeah that it's worth watching the uh the actual documentaries out there about the making of it because it's it's just it was not something that should have been it was kind of like ghost when it came out where it was low budget and then everybody ended up seeing it and a couple other movies like it but yeah it was it, it's it, you know it's very similar to Halloween. I know you're trying to wrap up, but I would love for Dina to tell her perspective on not only her shawl being pulled away, but the footsteps on the fourth floor of Waverly Place. I would love to hear that. Man, you got to make me talk about that fourth floor again. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the shawl the shawl was easier. The shawl wasn't that bad. And, and Jerry, you remember this when we were on the fifth floor. So when you did your live show and you were talking about that room on the fifth floor... I was so scared. I was so scared. And then when we were on the fifth floor, it wasn't that bad. There was that big vestibule open area when you came off the stairs. And then there were the wings on either side, um, which was unlike the rest of the hotel where there, or excuse me, the rest of the um, sanatorium where most of the rooms were two bedrooms and these were actual like multiple bed wings. So there was a lot of space that they let us move around. And I just kind of hung back and stayed in that vestibule area. I, I wasn't real comfortable going in 502, but 
once I saw it, it wasn't quite as terrifying as it sounded when you talked about it. By that point, you weren't feeling too hot either. No, I wasn't. Um, and the stories about 502, that it's so haunted because a young nurse took her life in that room, what we learned when we were at the sanatorium is that actually she took her life in that open vestibule area. And what was so interesting was the way the whole group congregated around our tour guide, there was this space that nobody would stand in. And apparently that's the space where she was found. She had hanged herself. And so I was just kind of milling about and um, I, I was pretty unsettled about some things that, you know, I'd experienced there. And I felt somebody tug on my shawl. And at first I thought, oh, is it Jeremy? Or did somebody just brush past me? Because at that point, we all had a little bit of free reign. We could sort of move wherever we wanted to. And then it happened again. And I had my shawl around my shoulders. And ladies will understand this. You put it around your shoulders, around your upper arms. Then you kind of tuck it in your in your arm. And no, it, it, it was pulled. It wasn't the wind. It didn't drop. It was being pulled. And so I just sort of turned my head to the side. And I said, I'm very cold. I, I would like to keep my shawl on. Would you please stop pulling on my shawl? Because I need it. And something to that effect. And it stopped. So I don't know who it was. I don't know what it was. But they considerately respected my request and stopped pulling on my shawl. So I haven't heard the term shawl said by someone under the age of 70, I don't think, in my entire life. Well, I mean, it's a scarf, but I wasn't wearing it as a scarf. I was wearing it as a shawl around my shoulders to stay warm. And if you hang out with Dina, you'll hear shawl quite a bit. Because <laughs> what, you, what else do you call it? She wears one all the time. I don't know. The only time I hear the word shawl, it's usually like a really old woman. Give me my shawl, baby. Okay. But that's fine. <laughs> Poor Jeremy, when we record Educating Jeremy together, it was so cold. I recorded in a closet, in a walk-in closet. It was so cold in here one time. I, I had a shawl wrapped around me, and, you know, I had my hair up in a bun, and my glasses pulled down on my nose so I could see my nose. I probably do look like a 70-year-old woman. You probably look like She a- had a blanket <laughs> over her at one point. I was picturing a little old lady with the Tweety Bird. <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. She had a full-on blanket over her at one point. Guys, it's been fun. It has been. Thank you, Jerry. You've given us so much time. You've been such a gracious host. Why don't you tell everybody how they can find your footsteps story? Because Jerry, Jerry's got to go. His listeners are going to be like, like, they're going to be like, dude, shut the, shut the hell up. Oh, I'm sure. Tell everybody how to find you on social media and your shows. You can find me at the Twisted Philly podcast on all major podcast apps. I'm on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly on Facebook at the Twisted Philly podcast. And I have to say thank you because so many of your listeners have already found me. And I really appreciate that you guys would take a trip up north to hang out with me in Philly. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us on, man. I appreciate it, too. Um, you, they can find me at BWLT Podcast on Twitter and in the Facebook group at uh, Podcast We Listen To is the name of that. We have about 20,000 members that talk about podcasts of all genres or whatever they listen to, whatever they like. We try to keep it positive. So yeah, as positive as you can keep 20,000 people at one time. <laughs> exactly. You did, you did easy. I'll tell you that. And then we also have educating Jeremy where we talk about the movies that she loves that I haven't seen. And that's at educating Jeremy on Twitter. And it's the same thing on Facebook. And it's the same thing on Facebook. <laughs> 
Guys, it's been How, fun. How's that angel's envy treating you? She keeps track of these things. I, I know shut we're, up about my angel's envy. I know we're going to be doing more stuff like this in the future. I know, Dina, we've already talked about doing something in the future. Yeah, um, I would love it. So we'll we'll get together on, on something. Um, Jeremy, it's been fun. I'm sure we'll end up together doing something. And uh, I'm, I'm just looking forward to New Orleans. Me too, God, me man. Me too. Me too. All right, guys, I'll talk yeah, to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having us on, man. You're welcome. Bye. How much fun are they two when you get them two together? <laughs> yeah, they're pretty funny. I love that one, the one show too, especially when she's trying to figure out why in the heck Jeremy hasn't seen a movie. <laughs> and it is pretty amazing, but it's yeah, but pretty I mean, funny. How, how amazing is it that I could probably be on that same show since there's all those movies that I haven't seen? I know. I don't. I don't know. I just maybe I just watch too much TV. I guess I just saw Pulp Fiction for the first time like three years ago. That's crazy to me. <laughs> And then when I saw it, it was I was like, like, man, I wish I'd have seen this forever. Yeah. So, anyway, guys, we love you so much. Uh, happy Memorial Day. Be safe out there. Thank you for all of our veterans out there. And um big thank you to the ones who never came home. Yes. God bless you all. We love you so much. And uh, we'll see you next week. Have a great day, guys. Hey, Hillbillies, if you guys enjoy what we do here on the show every week and appreciate all the hard work we put into it, consider being one of our Patreon supporters. All you got to do is go to our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com, click on the tab for donations, and you'll see the Patreon link right there. Click on it, and you can go to our Patreon page. Then you will have a decision to make. You can choose the $1, the $3, the $5, or the $10 donation. Each one gets you different things a month. But regardless, you get some free stuff. Just check out the bonuses under each tier and you'll see what you get for free for that month. But you'll get something free regardless. Also, if you'd like to buy any Hillbilly Horror Story merch, you're also in the right place on the website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. Just click on the store page and see whatever it is that you like. Click on a few links, send a little bit of money, and your item will be on its way. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. We love you. We thank you. And we appreciate you.